James asks an interesting question at the beginning of James chapter 4. We'll get there in a second and get where he goes with it. But the question is this, why do you fight? Why do you fight? Now, uh, for the most part, our, if, we're, if we think about it, our, our, our intellectual answer might be something better, but our, our instinctive answer is probably because I'm right. I fight because I'm right. And other people are wrong. They're so wrong. I am right and they are wrong. And if I'm wrong, I'm only wrong for a little bit because as soon as it's pointed out that I'm wrong, I'm right again. Have you thought about that? You never really feel the pain of wrong. You see wrong. You see when other people are wrong. But you always think you're right. And if someone comes to you and says, no, that's not right, this is right, then you feel right some more. You don't grieve for a week. Well, you know what? Don't tell me the, wrong, don't tell me the right answer. Give me a week to grieve my wrongness. Give me a week to sit in how wrong I am for just a second. That way I can feel the pain of wrong. No. We're right. We think we're right. We think we're right. Even in our wrongness, we think we're right. We think we're right. We're we, we are told there's a moment in time when we are told you are wrong and we are corrected. And then a millisecond later, we think we're right again. Even though for years we've been living in the wrong, we are right still. We think we fight because we are right. But even when you're wrong, you think you're right. No one loves being wrong. No one loves having the incorrect thought or the incorrect answer. Or the, no one loves it. When you're teaching a junior high class, especially like in Bible, in the Bible class in junior high, and you ask them a question, there's always the kid that's like, I got it, and they answer it, and it's just so, it's so out of left field. Like, they couldn't have tried to be any more wrong and succeeded. They just, just naturally were wrong a thousand percent. And you can't say, eh. <laughs> uh, I, I had to go to Benton last night uh, to a Mountain Fork camp meeting, and I, was, I got home at about 8, 8.30, and I was, as I came in, uh, Nolan was just getting to bed. Mom, uh, Rachel, had, uh, his, Rachel had put him in the, had put him in jammies, got his teeth brushed, they had said prayers, they had read books, and they were about to... Um, no, 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 they were, they were about to read a book. They were about to read a book, that's what it was. And um, she said, well, do you want me to read the book or do you want Daddy to read the book to you? And he looked at Rachel and went, eh. I want Daddy to. Which I thought was completely necessary. Like, I thought that was, well, that's the way it should happen all the time. He should, 
he should price his right, wrong her, and then um, come to me. But no, you can't do that to kids. Apparently, you can do it to moms. You can't do that to kids. You can't say, oh, goodness, good grief. That's, that was so wrong, I'm nauseous. You can't, you can't make them fit. You, you have to say things like, well, I, I can see where you're coming from. I get that thought. I understand your perspective. Now, you don't finish that sentence and say, I understand your perspective, and it's silly. But you want to you, you, you ease them into correcting them because the pain of wrong is almost too much for some people to bear. I had a friend who was at a taco truck in Hawaii. And he happened to be standing next to, he was, they were talking to, he was, the, the guy, it was a long line, popular taco truck, and they were standing next to the guy from a, from a university, one of the leading counselor, uh, leading researchers for, uh, for dementia and Alzheimer's in the world. It was one of those things like, oh, he asked him, what do you do for a living? He's like, well, I'm a minister. What do you do? He's like, I'm trying to solve Alzheimer's. It's like, oh, okay. Why don't you tell the stories? And he said, well, how, where, have y'all made any, have you made any adjust, like, made any progress on that? Anything we can be hopeful for? He said, we've done a lot, but the, this is several years back. I don't know what they've got, come up with since. But he said, at that time, he said, we've done a lot, but I, really the, the, the leading thing that helps people stay away from that is good diet and exercise. And he said, we found people don't even care about that. They'll, people would rather be comfortable than happy. And we'd, be rather, we'd rather be comfortable in our wrongness and stand firm in our wrongness than be corrected by it. And so what we do is we don't really point out our wrongness or we, don't, we rarely even consider it, especially when there's an argument involved. You don't, I mean, if you, and some of you are sitting here thinking, is he going to talk about spousal arguments? I have been the whole time. All arguments work like this. You think you're right, and so you argue. All fights work like this. Church fights, spouse fights, uh, uh, work fights. I'm right, you're wrong, let's settle this, until, and I will talk about it until you know I'm right. My knee just popped. Did everyone hear that? I'm fine, thanks. Thought I was going down for a moment. But he says, why do you fight? And then he, do, he doesn't say, it's because you're right, is it? No, that's not what he says. Why do you, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? Well, no. They, came, they come from other people being... They come from other people being wrong and making silly choices. We have to say silly. There's kids in here. 
They come from other people not making the right decisions, and I'm making the right decisions, not having the right perspectives, and they weren't raised the right way, and I was. My mama's a saint. He says, no, 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 no. What causes fights amongst you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? Isn't it something going on inside of you? Man, we would, we would much rather, we'd much rather point at somebody else and know what's wrong with them than sit alone with ourselves and figure out what's wrong with us. But your insecurities, your shame, your desires for self-satisfaction, those are the things that motivate us, according to James. What are we fighting about? He says, you desire, you desire, but do not have, so you kill. Now, you may say, well, I haven't killed my spouse yet. That's not something that's happened. He said, but you desire and do not have, so you kill. And of course, what he's pointing out here is like deep down, you want something to be one way and it's not. And he's not saying those desires are holy. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. You don't ask God. When you ask, you do not receive. Even if you ask God, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. Even when you're in conversation with God or you're in conversation with other, our others, our tendency is to want what we want and really, that's about as far as we're ready to consider. When you ask, you do not receive because you're selfish. And God knows you. Now, I think that's an act of love, that God's not going to give us something whenever we're selfishly going to use it. When you ask, you do not receive because... You ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. At this point, our brains have shifted because we're in church. And when we're in church, we like to think about how other people are the world and how we are the kingdom of God. But the line that separates good and evil runs right down the middle of all of us. And there are parts of us that are selfish and there are parts of us that have been purified and we're not quite all the way there yet. We aren't Jesus. But the part of us that's selfish is constantly wanting our way. Our own happiness, our own success, our own, our own adulation. And so I am the center of my story and all of these other people are in my way. Have you ever been walking just in a store or on the street and there's just someone walking straight toward you? And y'all are both, you're both walking and it's like, what? And so you move and you watch them walk past and they weren't even going to move. Well, you, first off, Chicken. You lost that game. 
Second of all, you didn't want to move either. Have you ever thought, I didn't say hi to me. What did you do? We are so, we, we think, we judge other people based on how they serve us, how they interact with us. We, a waitress or a waiter could be doing fabulous on nine tables and failing at yours. Now, she's an A-rated waitress, but in your mind, she's failing. Someone could have had a wonderful day and you caught them at their worst moment. And to you, they're failing. And to the rest of the, uh, rest of the people they ran into, they're doing just fine. We perceive other people to be in service to us and when they fail to us, they are failures. But if your goal is to be a Christian group, if your goal, as James wanted for these people, is to be a group of people both in your marriage and in your church and in your workplace to be the type of person that promotes unity and Christ over selfishness and division. If you want to be that type of person, there's things you've got to do. And choosing selfishness, choosing to be the, char- the main character in your story instead of the secondary character in other people's stories, that's friendship with the world. That's how the world functions. Anyone chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that He jealously, jealously longs for the Spirit He has caused to dwell in us, but He gives us more grace? That is why Scripture says God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. And, Paul, and James, at this point, uh, it, starting in verse 7, this is verse 6 here, and starting in verse 7, he's going to give ten imperatives Those of you who didn't pay attention in English, an imperative is when is like a command. It's it's typically it's has an implied you. Go make your bed, or make your bed. Means you. Like when you say that to your kids, they never say, "Who did they mean?" Now they might. And that's another conversation. You say, put that here, put this there. Take out the trash. Rachel looks at me and says, take out the trash. Now, actually, Rachel's very kind and polite. She goes, hey, could you take out the trash? She's very, she, knows, she knows I respond better if my, if my head's scratched first. I'm like, okay, yeah, thank you for asking. But she could just say, take out the trash. At that point, I'm not going to say who. But he gives ten imperatives. We're going to take them on in seven weeks because they break up evenly like that. There's a few that kind of go together. Where he says, you guys do this. This group that's fighting, he wants to solve this. It's not about, you know, they're, they're arguing. James does not come in and say, well, hold on. Let me, everybody tell me your side and I will tell you who's right, who's wrong. He, he, James isn't Judge Judy here. 
He's not solving the cases. He's saying, if you guys are fighting, it is, it is an attitude adjustment that is needed. And the first imperative, submit yourselves then to God. Submit yourselves then. This is how you've been living. Now, we see the second imperative there. Resist the devil. We'll talk about that next week. But all of this begins with a submission to God. And that submission to God makes you more comfortable with submitting to anything. Because everything is under God's kingdom. And if I submit to God, I'm submitting to God and God can handle the people around me that are wrong. Their wrongness is not going to ruin me. And also when I submit to God, I realize that, that God is the only one fully right. Fully good, fully holy, and I am the one who's broken. There's a beauty in submitting to God because you, you realized a sense of unnamed brokenness and immeasurable grace. When you submit to God, you realize your unnamed brokenness. You can put a finger on it. Like, I don't, I don't know what's wrong with me. Now, most of you might. But I don't. And if you told me, then it wouldn't be wrong with me anymore. I'd, I'd be right, and I'd correct it, and then we'd go move on, and I'd, there'd be something else wrong with me, and I wouldn't know that then either. You don't know what's wrong with you. And even if you do, are aware of some things that are wrong with you, you don't know about the other things. We all have unnamed wrong in our life. Stuff we're unaware of, but or partially aware of, but we just don't know what to do with it. Unnamed wrong is met by, in the presence of God, immeasurable grace. You, you don't have to be fully right. Actually, God needs submission more than He needs correction. God needs you to humble yourselves. And that's the last one, actually. The last imperative. God needs us to be, say, God, I'm yours. We, when we submit to God, we find that God is going to be gracious to us. Even in our wrongness, even in our brokenness, even in our incorrectness. So then for us to take that, to be submiss to, in submission to God, we say, God, I am wrong, I am broken. Thank you for your immeasurable grace. And then we turn to the people in the world and we say, you people are wrong and I'm sick of it. And then we go to God and we say, God, I, I submit to you because I am uh, un unnamed. I have unnamed wrongness in my life and I thank you for your immeasurable grace. And you people need to get your act together. And 
the more we give in to God, the more we submit to God, the more time we spend in front of the throne of God where God is, God is okay with us not sticking the landing. God is fine with us not doing the best we can right out of the gate or even as we cross the finish line. And as we feel what love actually feels like, and then we can go into the world and people just all around us are wrong, what, what we take with us is two things. Our own unnamed incorrectness humbles us in the world. And God's immeasurable, immeasurable grace strengthens us for it. The only way for us to live a life where we're not just fussing and fighting about nonsense is that we first and foremost submit ourselves to God and then let that submission rule in our everyday life. Letting our submission fuel our mission. And in that process, man, we people can be wrong. That's fine. Because I am wrong. And God loves me anyway. And as God's Spirit flows through me, that's just what my life's going to look like. Spouses do this to each other all the time, and you can tell it even in situations when they're not arguing. One of you is telling a story. We were on our way to, to Russellville one afternoon. No, it was Jonesboro. Oh, okay, and we saw a... Um, I'm pretty sure it was Jonesboro. I don't... Couples. Stop arguing about the details of your stories because it's making you both horrible storytellers. No one wants to hear your stories anymore. But for us to just let an incorrect thing pass, that's a pretty good sign of emotional, spiritual, and intellectual health. Let it go. And the, o- the only place to find the strength for such a thing is in submission to God as, a, as fuel for the mission that God has given you. It's the only place to do it. And the mission that God has given you is, is clear. It's to join His kingdom, to be a part of His, His, His mission on this earth. To, to, to create heaven on earth, to make, to make a, 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 just a small little spot in this small little county, make it be, look more like heaven because you're here. Because you follow the king, the one who conquered death, the one who conquered sin, the one who now reigns. We follow that king. We submit to Jesus because we practice that. 
we're good at doing what Jesus has called us to do. A church that does not fight and bicker can do a lot for the kingdom of God. The devil does not want you to worship him. He wants you to worship you. Because that's all Satan cares about is that you just don't worship God and the next best option is yourself. So if you've been worshiping yourself for too long, choosing not to submit to God, but only to submit to self. You've been upheld by your own perceived rightness and you have not submitted to God. Feeling and knowing your unnamed wrong, but also feeling the beauty of your imme- the immeasurable grace offered to you. Today's the day to give your life to the King. So if you need anything this morning, if you want to give your life to Jesus, you want to start over, you need prayers, today's your day. You have a church here who loves you. And we all know, we all know that we're all wrong and that when you come forward, you're not the only sinner standing in this room. You're the only one who was courageous enough to tell your church that you needed your church to submit to God. If you need anything this morning, please come forward while we stand and while we sing.